Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Cordro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the Resource Optimization Network and um, Solving Healthcare webinar series. We're already at number four, and we got a joint venture with Dr. Dave Nilopovitz, who's our head of our department, who you all, uh, I'm sure, know, and also Scott Millington, who's one of our intensivists and ultrasonographer of the year. He got the ultrasonographer of the year award and also, um, on, well, in all, in all honesty, extremely well published in terms of the world of ultrasound. So it, it, it truly is a privilege. And he's been working a lot behind the scenes in terms of how do we treat COVID? You know, these patients coming into ICU, um, it's obviously a, a novel uh, syndrome and, and, the information and, and the, the appearance of these patients are, are always developing. And so I think it was important to talk about how we manage them. And so without further ado, I'm going to pass it off to my boy, uh, Dave Nilipovitz. Thanks, Quadro. And welcome, Scott. You know, and, and certainly to reiterate what Quad just uh, alluded to, Scott's done a lot of the background. And so that's why I'm, I'm kind of honored to have him give me a hand as we try to go through treatment approaches for COVID-19 and with a, a novel disease, um, trying to have treatment options for something for the most part, no one's ever seen before is obviously challenging uh, across the world. And for the most part, we'll present what um, is been published, what's been out there. Um, there's a lot of anecdotes, which is never great medicine, but it's, kind of the best available information that we have. And uh, the final aspect that, that we'll do is we'll try to mix in some of the Ottawa and surrounding area experience that we've had um, with it. And as some of you heard not long ago, Scott's just come off yet another week in, in the ICU. So I look forward to hearing some of his comments and his perspective on the management of COVID-19. Scott, welcome. Any words of wisdom before we get underway? Thanks, Dave. Nope, no words of wisdom. Looking forward to it as well. And of course, there we go. Um, so there's been a frantic surge. I think everyone's quite familiar with uh, all the different news reports of hopes and dreams for various uh, treatment options. And obviously the impact of that would certainly be on patient outcomes, trying to um, help patients who unfortunately get this disease get better um, and other ways to try to prevent it. There's a real big push and you might've seen it come out last week that there was a big disappointment in several of the studies that were published. And you'll see even business uh, journals and articles focusing on it because the, the impact economically, both of, of the social distancing as well as the downturn in 
economies of the world has been profound. Um, and with that, there's a great impetus to try to find solution or solutions to try to make things better. When we looked for, for guidance on what to do, um, as is typical for any type of medical problem, is we try to get the best available evidence. Um, what a lot of this is based on is, is these three sources uh, for those interested. And basically, there was um, published by the Society of Critical Care Medicine in the United States, along with the European Society, some guidelines. For the most part, these were the surviving sepsis guidelines with a little bit of an update for COVID. So the applicability of these are a little bit limited. Last week, the Canadian uh, group put out some recommendations as well. Um, for them, there is 23 recommendations with one being subdivided. For the most part, the only strong recommendations was for three different areas, um, along with three best practice recommendations. So roughly about 17 very weak recommendations, and weak being because the evidence simply isn't there. So I'll make it challenging for whatever we try to do um, and recommend and recognize that what we recommend on May 4th, 2020 may not be the same even May 11th. And so we always recommend that everyone uh, consult the best available guidelines at the time. Um, the one that I personally like the best um, and not because the recommendations were, were um, always what I agreed with, but more importantly, it provided um, the most comprehensive recommendations along with uh, multiple references to help guide um, the basis of how they generated that. And that was from the CDC, that's the bottom one um, of the three. And I would encourage you to kind of go there. It's kept up to date very, very effectively, and you can search your different uh, questions and get the best available evidence. Scott, where did you find your information? Uh, yeah, I would uh, give a second plug for the CDC website. It's got a lot of good stuff for treatment and also just um, things like organizational aspects, which I found really useful. And you know, I certainly agree. It's hard to know what to make of a recommendation that says, you know, this drug may be used or this drug should only be used within the context of a clinical trial. You know, it's not the most directive and helpful advice, but, um, you know, a function of not having very much evidence yet. And uh, just as we're getting going, I think it goes without saying, as you're alluding to that, you know, it's going to get annoying if after every sentence I say, I don't really know, or I'm not really sure, or this is based on what I think right now. So we'll just maybe throw out the blanket caveat going forward, as you said, that this is based on a very rapidly evolving situation. And so uh, it's very hard to be sure about anything right now. Totally concur. There's even less evidence on this as compared to the PPE, which uh, is a sensitive topic at the best of time. When we look at outcomes, um, and I think a lot of us were horrified by the numbers that came out of Italy, out of New York State. Um, what, uh, when you look at it in a deeper dive for, for the Italian experience, it, and these numbers are a little bit dated already where they talked about an ICU mortality of 26% and a discharge of 
16% with the remaining being still in the ICU. So it's hard to say exactly what an ICU mortality is. It's always dependent on what your denominator is. If I was to, to give you some idea on the local experience, and, and this is our region, it's not just our hospital. Our ICU mortality has been roughly about 20%. Um, our discharges, and what I mean by discharges, these are, are, are patients who survived their ICU stay and are discharged at least to the floor. Uh, some have gone directly home. It, it's been encouraging in that it's, it's about 60% with still about a fifth of them remaining in the ICU at present time. So I think our mortality numbers are, are gonna be similar to the, the experience out of Italy. Um, now people will talk about the 10% mortality that Italy is reporting. Again, it's dependent on your denominator and that was an overall mortality. Um, we're focusing primarily on critical care. Uh, a study that came out of the UK was suggesting a 50% mortality. I, I think we'll certainly be below that. Uh, and so our experience has is, is, is been better, but obviously one in five is, is still a very high mortality. Scott, have you heard other anecdotes yeah, about mortality? Yeah, it's a tough situation um, to report on. It, it it would, of course, heavily depend as well on what kind of patients you bring to the ICU. You know, are we counting, quote unquote, step down units as ICUs? Are you in a very resource rich environment where you, every case that you're at, at all worried about, you could bring them to the ICU just in case? Uh, that would obviously affect things quite a bit, too. Or are you stuck in a situation where you can only bring intubated patients to your ICU? You know, those are some of the, uh, the factors. And, you know, these papers getting pushed out quickly means that a lot of the patients are still intubated awaiting a disposition. Uh, famously, that paper in JAMA that reported as high as an 88% mortality, which counted all the people who were still, uh, or just had a three quarters of the patients still intubated waiting their disposition. So pretty tough to know. Um, otherwise, um, uh, you know, I, I'm encouraged by the numbers that you've shown there, I suppose. And I just re reinforce, like, it's important this is a really important slide because that, you know, JAMA, was it JAMA? Sorry, the, the New York data uh, was potentially influential. You know what I mean? Like people might decide on on management based on numbers like that. So I, I appreciate you guys just really um, illustrating what our experience is um, just to put a, um, a realistic slash local twist to outcomes. Thanks, Scott. And, and just put it one further context um, that perhaps the audience may not be as familiar with. For a typical level three ICU, which is where we practice with ventilators and breathing machines and, and various things, a, a typical mortality rate in that type of environment is around 20%, um, depending on, on the type of patients you have. So, so the 20% mortality it is is not great, but not as discouraging as hearing about an 88% mortality and something to that effect. In terms of COVID-19 itself, how it presents, and this is what's made it kind of challenging um, for, for many physicians in that the way it presents in patients isn't always the same. There's some patients who I think were 
pretty familiar with now that are pretty asymptomatic in, in the community with it. But for those that end up coming that sick to the hospital, what was reported by Gattinoni and, and his group out of Italy is certainly, you know, a lot of um, individuals are laying credence to it is the two phenotypes, or so-called phenotypes. The phenotype H, um, which is patients who um, have a high elastance or, or very stiff lungs, these are the patients that really need intubation and ventilators. Um, they are the traditional uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, ARDS, that we hear about and manage from other causes other than COVID. So that is pretty typical um, of the more severe form. What was interesting and unusual is the so-called phenotype L. Um, the L stands for the lows, low elastance or essentially normal lung compliance. And these are the patients that perhaps don't need intubation and ventilators, and we'll, we'll build on that shortly, but they're easier to ventilate. Um, they need low PEEP, and these are not your traditional ARDS type of patients. Now, some of them can subsequently transform in this, into ARDS or so-called phenotype H, but managing these patients uh, requires different approaches than if it was ARDS. And although this isn't universally accepted by everyone, I, I think we certainly, our local experience would, would give credence to this. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, um, I don't want to have too much of a hot take here, but I do have some concerns about this dichotomous classification. Uh, I obviously agree with uh, all of the principles that you just mentioned. Um, and I certainly acknowledge that this is an excellent starting spot. And I also acknowledge that uh, Dr. Gattinoni has forgotten more about critical care medicine than I'll ever know. But um, I do have concerns. So, you know, I think that this kind of implies that it's a dichotomous situation, whereas probably it's a spectrum, right? And, you know, that's intuitive enough. Um, you say on the slide here that it's type L is not ARDS, and I agree with it. However, it, it will meet the definition, the Berlin definition of ARDS, you know, certainly for patients that are sick enough that you're considering intubating them. So again, that speaks more to the weakness, I think, of the Berlin definition of ARDS. Um, but, you know, technically by that definition, they are ARDS. Um, and uh, although, you know, your point's well taken. And, and the final thing is that I'm a little worried that by creating this new type L phenotype, it leads to new ventilation strategies being developed, which we're gonna talk about down the road. And some of those new ventilation strategies I have some concerns with, and we'll touch on that on later slides. No, ex excellent points. I, I agree with your spectrum comment. And, and I think perhaps the most important thing to take home for, for, uh, for health professionals managing these patients is to tailor the, the treatment to the individual's needs as opposed to a blanket algorithm for all patients. And I think that's the important thing uh, to take home, that there is not a one-size-fits-all management strategy for these patients. And this kind of builds on it. Like Initially, when we were hearing about COVID-19, the, the comment or the suggestion recommendation was, you got to intubate these patients early. You have to you have to do so because that's the only way you're going to save them. And I think what became pretty clear relatively early on that this wasn't the perfect solution. Uh, so this one size fits all approach 
actually probably potentially harm patients. Uh, and so what a shift has been is to be more selective on who gets intubation and thereby a ventilator in that do they need it? Will they benefit from it? And that that's the emphasis that, that we've tried to stress here um, in that uh, patients can be safely managed off of a ventilator. Now, Scott, you did a lot of work on the oxygen screen and, and Obviously, if individuals really want to read this in great detail, they can go look at the website, uh, covidottawa.com. But the premise of this test was basically to determine how well an individual responded to some kind of oxygen screening test and whether or not they could potentially be uh, safely managed without being intubated and on a ventilator. Um, at least even temporarily. Um, the idea is that you do the tests for an hour and see how well the individual does. And that those who are not doing well, then we either escalate therapy if that's appropriate or consider what is the, the most appropriate management for them. The, the goal of this was to kind of slow down the rushed intubation as well as to determine what is best for an individual. Scott, you did a lot of work on this. What, what were your take-home messages for this? Well, I think that, uh, as you said, the initial word on the street just before we started to see patients was uh, intubate everybody once they get to a certain arbitrary oxygen threshold. And luckily, again, just, just as the wave was starting to come, we got the message that that was not a, a great idea. It's not good for the patient. It's not good for the system. Uh, to intubate patients who don't need it. And so exactly as you said, uh, the main purpose of this is just to build in a little bit of a pause and to help uh, disseminate that through a, a large institution like ours. And so um, you put the patient on this screening test, which we'll go over in a second, and, and you, that gives you time to do, I think, three important things. So number one is to see which way they're going to break. Are they moderately sick or are they severely sick? Uh, the second thing you can do is you can you can phone a friend. You know, uh, you may be doing some things that you're not perfectly comfortable with. This might be the first uh, COVID patient you've seen. Um, and so it's very helpful to get a friendly second opinion. And the third thing you can do is you can start to think about and explore goals of care, um, learn a bit more about the patient, uh, decide if you think offering things like intubation and mechanical ventilation is right for them. You can have a conversation with the patient or their substitute decision maker and decide if if invasive things are within their values and wishes. So that pause of approximately an hour allows you to do hopefully all those three things. Um, the screening test there in the yellow box on the left, you can see you've got <clears throat> three options, the most straightforward of which is to put them on a non-rebreather mask, which again, you have to defer to your local institutional policies with respect to PPE, but at our institution, a non-rebreather mask with a filter uh, can be put on anywhere um, and so it's convenient. People know how to use a non-rebreather mask. And so this is perhaps the quickest way to get a patient out of danger, hopefully. Uh, otherwise, slightly more complicated, you can use uh, high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. And you're basically trying to decide if they're going to pass or fail. Um, the criteria are listed there below. I would just to start with de-emphasize number two, um, just with your eyeballs, if the patient looks bad, then they fail. If they have work of breathing, accessory muscle use and things like that. Um, that is a failure. If you do a gas, 
and they've got a rising PCO2 in the face of a high respiratory rate, that's a ventilatory defect, and that would constitute failure. So those things are fairly quickly done. And then the last criteria is the, is the oxygenation, which is a little trickier in the world where permissive hypo, um, um, uh, per, permissive uh, lower sats, well, uh, vocabulary, um, is perhaps uh, acceptable. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about saturation thresholds uh, a little bit later, um, but that one's a little harder. But, you know, those are some criteria for failure. Um, obviously, if their saturation remains at a low level despite high amounts of oxygen, then that's uh, going to constitute a fail, and that means an ICU consultation and further discussions perhaps about goals of care. If they pass, um, then they need to come into hospital and the, the, the goal at the next branch point is do they come under uh, more of a medicine type environment uh, or uh, are they needing uh, ICU environments if they're still on high amounts of oxygen even if they've stabilized a bit and that that's really uh, the gist of it I think uh, communication between services is key uh, and uh, so we've seen ICU medicine the eMERGE team uh, other teams be involved in communication being very important Thanks, Scott. Help me out. What's the word I was looking for there? Hypoxemia. Thank you. hypoxemia. Thank you. That's I was going to point it out, but uh, I'm there. I'm there to rescue you. So this, for those who don't know, that's a picture of a high-flow nasal cannula, um, much maligned device um, that is purported to be uh, aerosol generating. Um, but that's it for another discussion. This certainly has, in, in our opinion, or in my opinion, I won't project, um, a huge uh, role for the management of uh, patients who aren't being intubated. Um, this is the so-called L-type or the uh, pneumonia slash pneumonitis type. Scott, you you uh, you agree with this uh, for this? Uh, the the sorry, the slide in general. Well, yeah, you talked about this is your slide. Yeah, yeah. That, so, I mean, I, I just put some principles here. I think it's kind of interesting that you can uh, derive, for better or for worse, some general principles from the way these patients present. Again, we're talking about the unusual L-type with relatively normal lung compliance. So I've just listed some principles, and we'll come back to these in a later slide about uh, ventilated patients. So, um, you know, they're not dysnic. Uh, certainly a large proportion of them are not dysnic. And so from that, you can infer, and once they get intubated, you can see that they have relatively normal lung compliance. They're very hypoxemic, um, and there's a debate I've listed. I put down shunt physiology there. There's a big debate as to why they're so hypoxemic. Uh, some people think it's got to do with loss of hypoxic vasoconstriction. Uh, some people think it's got a lot to do with uh, severe atelectasis. There's a theory about um, micro uh, thrombus in the pulmonary circulation. Um, there's surfactant theories floating around out there. Um, I don't think we have much clarity on that particular point. Um, number three, you can infer that they've got relatively low dead space because their PCO2s are generally slightly low. Um, uh, certainly, they're not they're not high in general. And then generally, these people, depending on what phase of the illness is, you know, they're not having their best day, but they are generally normal in terms of level of consciousness. And um, they're strong, uh, certainly strong enough to do the work of breathing on their own, at least initially. And so, again, theoretically, they're, they're, they're decent candidates for things like high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this slide just builds on, on that aspect, um, whereby 
what is going on um, potentially in these patients. Uh, the goal here, and people talk about silly. Um, I'm not sure I'm solely on board with this self-induced lung injury uh, component, um, but there is a lot about this disorder that, that's not very clear. Um, the idea, however, is if you are going down this path, that you still need to watch these patients closely. Um, we talk about looking for increased work of breathing, um, the permissive hypoxemia, what is an acceptable threshold? Uh, I think that's debated. I know Scott was advocating 80. Um, others were less comfortable with that. I, I'm somewhat on board with you, Scott, especially how quickly it develops. I mean, there's evidence that people will tolerate very low SATs if that develops over a period of time. Um, so again, I don't think we have the perfect answer, but striving for 95 to 100% certainly is not recommended. Um, the idea of self-proning has, has strongly been advocated, um, where patients basically turn themselves over onto their belly. Uh, it does help uh, with their gas exchange in many patients. And the role of sedation, I, I was certainly struck by the high needs that a lot of the COVID patients have. Um, they're very resistant as compared to other individuals. Um, Scott, do you have thoughts? Well, I mean, just to touch on the oxygenation question again, it's it's really hard. It sounds easy just to put a algorithm on paper, but you know these patients are dynamic. They're moving targets. They're getting worse. They're stabilizing. They're getting better. And 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 minute by minute, their saturations are changing. You know, they they might take a sip of water and desaturate down to 78. And so is that a failure? Even if you're using a low threshold like 80, I don't know. If they pop right back up and they look good, that's okay, or maybe it's not. I mean, these things are, are, are really hard. Um, and it's, it's, it's especially hard, I would just throw out to say, it's, it's, it's especially hard for the nurses and the respiratory therapists who spend so much time at the patient bedside. And so for us to wander by, and see the patient looking pretty good at that moment in time and be reassured is one thing, but if you're the, the ICU nurse or respiratory therapist, or physiotherapist who has to spend hours at a time, um, it can be a lot harder to stare at a number that you're generally programmed to be uncomfortable with. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, the favor is when someone's telling you a story and they're desaturating at the same time, but they're not distressed by it, but you're distressed by the numbers, how they're going down. It, it raises questions, am I doing the right thing for my patient by not putting them on a breathing machine in, in the traditional sense? With that raises the question of when do you intubate? And, and we went from one extreme of intubate everyone early, and then I worry that sometimes there's too much of a shift the opposite way of not intubating enough or soon enough. Some of the things I look for is certainly the aspect, do they look unwell, are they troubled, do they have worsening work of breathing. Um, in terms of severe hypoxemia, you can see that we didn't put a number there. Um, again, what is acceptable, what isn't, um, certainly is subjective. And, and finally, just simply failing to tolerate what you're doing. Um, but again, I, I don't have an easy threshold or to say at this stage, you have to intubate. Scott, do you have any magic answers for people? And I guess I'd add 
PCO2, you know, if they do have vent a ventilatory defect, then I think that that's a red flag that is actionable here. But otherwise, I would just echo your comments about this being extremely difficult. And it's difficult because, you know, you're, you're doing a complex probability calculation and you're not allowed to know any of the actual numbers. So, you know, if a patient can sail through without needing intubation, that is a massive advantage. And the patients who seem to do best are the ones that avoid intubation. So how much are you willing to risk to try and offer the patient that resistance, that low resistance pathway to doing well. Um, you also have to factor in that intubations in these patients can be dangerous, of course, dangerous to staff, but we'll leave that for the moment and just talk about danger to the patient themselves. Um, the numbers are something like six or as high as 10% of these patients have a cardiac arrest on uh, intubation. Um, and so, you know, we could hope to do uh, better than that, but uh, nonetheless, there will be a risk of, of that happening when you, when you intubate them. So just to point out that there's a lot of moving parts here and the decision-making is, is challenging. Absolutely. And just so everyone's clear, there's also an association that those who are doing better may not require intubation and thereby do better. So take the numbers always in context of what it is. But I agree, if, if you can avoid it, I, 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 I share your bias on that, Scott. Now, everyone likes algorithms and to simplify, um, so why would we not have one as well? But I, obviously it's hard to read and, and you can see the reference uh, where to go for it. Again, this is for starting, and, and I think that's what everyone should be taking home, that there is no perfect way to ventilate these patients. But with the idea of the two phenotypes, the traditional ARDS, you see some of the initial vent settings that we recommend. And that's out there for a start, and then titrate and adjust based on patient needs. And I think that's the most important. We're pretty aggressive at proning um, patients with the H-type or the more severe ARDS-like um, uh, problem with COVID. Um, use of paralytic agents uh, certainly is advocated. It's the L-type that, that Scott has already talked about and alluded to that, that is kind of challenging. There are some patients who clearly don't tolerate the uh, high-flow nasal cannula or other related types of oxygenation uh, devices. Some do require intubation. Um, whether they're about to transition into uh, more of a typical ARDS pattern is always hard to predict. Um, you can see our initial settings there. Uh, for the most part, slightly higher tidal volumes than traditional ARDS uh, management. Probably the most important thing is, is the other yellow um, arrows pointing to a lower peak. So you don't need the high PEEP um, in these patients to, to improve oxygenation. Uh, what do we follow on, on a regular basis, particularly for, for the uh, pneumonia type or the L-type, is to measure the compliance daily um, as well as the driving pressure. As the compliance is typically over 40, which is suggestive of normal lungs, what you would see is if they're transitioning into more of an air ARDS-like pattern that you'll see the compliance get worse. And likewise, the driving pressure uh, for the L-type is, is normally under 12. That's plateau pressure minus PEEP. Um, the lungs are essentially normal um, as opposed to the higher pressures that are required for, for the ARDS patients. Scott, do you have anything to add on this or just to emphasize 
these are the two extremes of the spectrum and, and to adjust your management according to, to the patient needs. Yeah, I have some thoughts, but I could save it for the next slide. Uh, so this is, you know, the same sort of principles I've listed on the previous slide um, down the left hand. And, and the study I reference here, uh, you know, I don't think we want to get into looking at studies in detail, but it, it just kind of made a point that I'm worried about. So this is a study that you can look up. It was published three or four days ago out of Boston, and it's uh, 66 ICU patients all intubated, and they all have a disposition. So these patients have all either survived or, or passed away. And so from that, you can tell that this was a study that was done very early on when the wave was first crashing uh, in the United States. And so they didn't have as many of these concepts flushed out in terms of L-type or H-type. And when you look at the study, these were mostly L-type patients. So they mostly had pretty normal compliance. And so what did they do with these people? Well, they ventilated them like we always ventilate ARDS patients. They ventilated them with a low tidal volume strategy and with not high levels of PEEP, but normal levels of PEEP for an ARDS patient. So they used the standard ARDS approach for these patients and their outcomes were good. The mortality in this cohort, again, all intubated ICU patients was 16%, one six. Um, and so that's, you know, the source of my concern that maybe, and this is obviously just a hypothesis, but we shouldn't do things too, too different from normal for these patients once they get, once they get intubated. Um, I certainly agree with all your concepts about, you know, the PEEP, if anything, uh, doesn't need to be as high as usual. Uh, the tidal volumes might want to be a little bit higher than usual, but I have some concerns, uh, some worries about the recommendations that have suggested going as high as eight or even nine um, milliliters per kilogram. You know, that seems, that seems high to me, and I, I'm a little worried about um, jettisoning um, a very evidence-based component of, of ARDS care here. So time will tell. Um, and then, you know, if you can look down the slide, now we're talking about patients who have been intubated with the L-type. Um, they, they have relatively normal compliance for an intubated patient, so you have to worry about over-distension. Um, barotrauma volume trauma, trauma is, you know, that risk is there theoretically. They still have the same physiology that's causing severe hypoxemia, and you still have the same problem with respect to your oxygenation targets. I would not advise aiming for saturations of 100%, you'll presumably get oxygen toxicity and uh, excessive PEEP if you do that. Um, they still have relatively low dead space. And so at least at first, until they stiffen up, they're relatively easy to ventilate. And by that, I mean, get rid of PCO2. And then the recruitability thing that you're, that you're touching on, if you give them too much PEEP, they're going to get hypotensive. And that's a big problem because they're going to end up getting fluids. Um, and that's bad as far as we know. Um, but then again, there is concern out there that if you use an ultra-low PEEP strategy, then they may um, be victim of, of um, atelectasis and then the cyclical closing and reopening of alveoli uh, or so-called atelectotrauma. Great. I mean, I think the strategy of avoiding extremes yet again bears out um, in yet another illness as it does in most illnesses. I find it interesting on, on those results that, that you're presenting there is the uh, roughly about one in five requiring tracheotomy, um, which interesting when we did ours, um, there was a lot of pushback on it. Um, and you can see that avoidance of tracheostomy, which has been advocated by some groups, I'm not, not sure is, is the proper strategy. Um, and certainly, uh, selective use of it is probably quite appropriate. When we admit to, to the ICU, our, 
our COVID patients. Um, for the most part, it's, it's typical ICU admission orders. Um, a lot of it is supportive measures. You can see that we do follow the CRP, the ferritin, and the D-dimer. And rightly or wrongly, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit, we don't know if that's the right answer. Um, certainly, many of us are speculative on it, and we'll show how, at least for myself, um, how I use it. Uh, what we do believe is is the idea of early feeds, but low in intravenous fluids. And now, I, I know everyone's always worried that, oh, you're running your patients dry, they're gonna require dialysis. And I know for a while, um, early on when we were hearing about COVID, there was a concern about high renal failure. Um, for those interested, uh, at our area, um, we've experienced roughly uh, about a 20% need for dialysis um, for patients of new onset dialysis. Uh, a little bit higher for those who've had renal insufficiency, uh, but in terms of dialysis, um, actually 10%, sorry, I think I said 20%, 10% uh, was the rate of dialysis, uh, new onset of dialysis, and 20% was roughly those who have renal insufficiency. So pretty significant, but not as, as high as, as some sites have advocated. So I think we're finding the reasonable balance from running them dry. In terms of specific and supportive measures, we'll get into in a little bit. Um, Scott, anything else you like to do when you admit the patients? Uh, no, I think you've covered it pretty well. The, whether they have a co-infection is often very difficult to sort out, and most of these patients get put on um, empiric coverage for a community-acquired pneumonia, which you could uh, certainly understand. Uh, otherwise, I would second your restrictive fluid strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think once we get quicker um, results on our COVID testing, um, the need to cover for differential diagnosis, uh, like community-acquired pneumonia. I, I know we also look for influenza. Uh, initially, our, our response getting the COVID test results back was 48 hours, 72 hours, but they've become very good with that. So I think the need for antibiotics, at least initially, will become less and less. In terms of medical therapies, and, and I think this is what everyone's looking for, the panacea of, of solutions. Now, there's two important concepts that, that we'll dive into just briefly, and then we'll save some time for some questions. What we, when you talk about the different treatment options for COVID, there, there's two components, and, and that's the mechanism of action of the purported uh, treatment, as well as the timing. And, and both of those concepts are, are very important because if you use it at the wrong time or the wrong drug, don't be surprised that you don't get the treatment that you desire. In terms of mechanism of action, um, there is two subcategories uh, for the most part for this. It's either directed at the virus or directed at how the patient or the host responds to the, the infection. You can see in the illustration here that the, the virus attaches uh, via the ACE2 receptors, um, and that's perhaps why some people are concerned about ACE inhibitors and things, which if there's questions about that, we can go into it. But the drug binds to the ACE2 receptors, enters the cells, and, and thereby undergoes replication. 
there's various medications that either impair the binding to these ACE2 receptors or the subsequent reproduction of the virus within the host cell. And that you can see that's where the chloroquine um, perhaps impacts, as well as the various other antiviral agents uh, in that regards. In terms of the host response, um, a little bit on, on the illustration, it, it's basically what you're trying to do is impact the immune response or actually target the virus in the bloodstream, as well as some of the complications, uh, such as the need for anticoagulation, which we'll build upon shortly. Timing as well is crucial, and you'll see this slide again shortly. But what it's showing is that as the virus comes into the body, there's a so-called viral response phase, and eventually there's the host response or the inflammatory phase. So you can see various medications um, at the bottom that would only be effective at certain stages. Um, it also is important because some medications may actually be harmful dependent on the time that they're actually administered. So that if you attempt to reduce the immune system too, too early, it may actually have detrimental effects. Uh, some drugs have a larger therapeutic window, but don't be surprised that some medications um, all have limitations with that. Scott, anything about uh, timing or mechanism that you want to build on? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you did a great job outlining the issues here. Um, I think that the challenge is going to be that most of the agents that interfere with viral replication, of course, the earlier you give them, the better. But because you're not seeing these patients until day eight or 10, uh, you know, the, the mean day of presentation to certainly an ICU is something like 10 days. Um, you know, by that time, I think the horse is out of the barn, so to speak, and you'd expect those medications to be uh, less effective and the side effect profile to be perhaps more concerning, although these seem to be pretty well tolerated drugs uh, in general. Uh, and then I think, you know, when this slide comes back in a couple slides, uh, we'll use it to talk about timing of steroids again. And I find that to be a, a particularly interesting issue. Um, but, you know, I'm hopeful, if I'm hopeful at all for some of the treatments that are on the table right now, I'm hopeful for them in an outpatient setting. Um, where you're hitting viral replication before the patient gets very sick. No, I agree. Um, in terms of the antivirals, um, I think this is what a lot of the press is focused on, these medications. Um, I think many are aware that hydroxychloroquine was advocated by the president. Unfortunately, the uh, purported benefits were not only probably overhyped, um, there's evidence that you do have something to lose because uh, there was an association of, of sudden death, uh, cardiac death, um, with the use of hydroxychloroquine and its, its parent drug of chloroquine. How those drugs work, um, again, uh, you can see that they impact the virus uh, being able to, to bind to the host as well as uh, impacts the immune response with that. What did come out of the recommendations was pretty clear to avoid the use of hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin, which is important for people to be aware of because that combination was actually the initial recommendation that, that all of us had was to give azithromycin along with uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, the concern being they both affect the QT interval. Interesting enough, the sudden cardiac death 
wasn't even associated with typical QT uh, responses. So whether or not hydroxychloroquine by itself has a, a, a role, uh, perhaps is somewhat debatable, um, but for the most part, the evidence isn't supportive of it. Um, in terms of the HIV protease inhibitors, uh, the lopinavir uh, combination uh, with uh, ritinavir, um, for the most part, it is affecting the protease that splits uh, the virus within the cell. Unfortunately, most of the studies have not shown um, any significant benefit. But the drug that, at least for me in, in my readings, made the most sense is the remdesivir. Um, and the reason why for me it had the most sense was because the, the drug actually has some activity against other coronaviruses, most particular the MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory uh, uh, Coronavirus that we heard about, I think it was two years ago. Uh, for presently, it's only available in compassionate release. Um, last week, you might have heard Dr. Foshi uh, out of the United States talking about a press release from the, uh, from the company that suggested um, it reduced the duration of ventilation. The timing of that was curious um, in that there is a study released in the Lancet um, of a Chinese study that basically reported no benefits uh, with the drug except perhaps um, a decrease in time until there was benefit in patients. But that's really not a real outcome for, for most of us. So unfortunately, uh, these drugs for the most part have been very disappointing. For me, Scott, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on it. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, remdesivir, we're going to hear a lot about it, I suspect. Um, I would not predict it will be an ICU drug. I would predict that um, the best case scenario would be it would find a role in patients who are earlier in their illness uh, and prevent some ICU admissions. I guess that's that's the hope here. But all the studies, even of remdesivir to my eye, are still well within the range of only hypothesis generating. Yeah. and. Getting access to the drug obviously requires compassionate release, but since it comes from the United States, I'm not sure um, we have ready access to it, um, unfortunately. Interesting for those, it was developed for Ebola along with influenza um, as well. The other treatment that's gotten a lot of press is kind of an old style type of treatment that's we're basically you're trying to transfuse antibodies from a patient who you believe is immune to the virus into a patient suffering from the virus. And although initially I thought this made a lot of sense, um, it's been used for other diseases and disorders. I, part of the challenge is that we're not even 100% certain that those who've been exposed to COVID and have antibodies are actually immune to it. My suspicion is that they probably are, um, but again, that, that still uh, needs to uh, be clarified. What I found interesting, and this is important if we ever talk about vaccines for, for COVID, is the so-called concept of antibody enhancement. And what that is, maybe everyone's not familiar with it, but basically, if you don't have a perfect match, um, that the patient's response 
when they get an infection may actually be worse than if they didn't get the treatment. Um, the classic example of this is for dengue fever, which has different virus serotypes. So that the first time you get the dengue fever, your response isn't as bad as it is in the second uh, infection with a different serotype. So you actually get enhanced immune response that can actually be worse. And so that, that's the downside of a poorly matched vaccine and potentially um, with plasma. The other immune modifiers- I'm sorry, Dave, uh, I just, sorry to cut you off, but just to reinforce that antibody enhancement, like the, with that um, dengue vaccine uh, that you were citing, like there was mortality, like kids died from that. Like it was like a real issue. And so I just want to make sure it's not people listening. It's not just like this theoretical, Hey, let's not, let's not get too worried about that. But it, it's, it was a fatal consequence. Thanks Scott. And, and absolutely. And that's, that's, I, I see that less of an issue with plasma uh, potentially, uh, unless there are now different serotypes of COVID, but it certainly is a real concern. Likewise, the other immune um, modifiers of the various interleukin types of drugs, the anakinra, which is an anti-interleukin-1, uh, um, and uh, the various MABs. A again, they potentially may impact the host in an adverse fashion, particularly if used early on. Scott, anything to add on those, or we can move into the corticosteroids? Yeah, we can move into steroids. My only comment here would be that I'm cautiously optimistic about plasma or serum therapy, but you would predict based on our hypothetical model that it would be more effective the earlier in the disease you give it. So again, it's probably not something that's going to save an ICU patient, uh, but maybe would prevent an ICU admission if given very early in the course. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it would it, um, speed up viral elimination, but if you have an adverse uh, immune response uh, to it, it perhaps may not uh, be the answer. In terms of corticosteroids, um, what was initially recommended was complete avoidance of this, that it worsens outcome. And, and I'll let you discuss it, Scott, but I think you and I both agree that it at least has a role um, in some fashion. Um, and perhaps I'll let you go first and say where you use it and how you would like to see it used. And, and I'll, I'll touch on that as well. Yeah, um, you know, I my my bias here, and I'm I'm certainly very willing to be wrong about this, and and worried that I will be proven wrong with time. But as uh, currently stands, my bias is uh, somewhat pro corticosteroids. You do have to kind of go through the thought process here. Um, the, the the studies about uh, you know increasing the time of viral shedding, uh, so potential harm uh, tend to be in studies where the the steroid is given early, and so that's something that we shouldn't do. Um, looking at the graph here, once you're in the pulmonary phase, so you know 2A or 2B, that's where hypothetically a low dose steroid regimen, so typically in the 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram range of something like methylprednisone, would hopefully blunt the host immune response. And then the other uh, place that it could be considered would be in a very sick hyperinflammatory phase to give higher dose steroids, which would have some overlap with um, you know, perhaps 
ARDS care uh, writ large. So it, it's complicated. Um, the credit here on this slide, I've, I've uh, shown the actual study at the bottom. On the bottom right, uh, I've referenced a, a blog called the Palmcrit and uh, Josh Farkas uh, from Vermont. Um, I would recommend this if you're looking for a place where uh, really uh, smart people um, discuss this issue in uh, sort of narrative form or even um, in, uh, you know, um, debates. Um, and so some of the ideas here come from there. Um, so that's a really good resource I think that people could check out. Um, again, if you peel through all the studies with the eye of faith, uh, you can convince yourself that there may be a role for steroids here, uh, again, either in that middle phase or in that late phase. But again, we're looking at subgroup analysis of small studies. And so we're, we're firmly in the range of hypothesis here. And that, that should be clearly understood. No, I agree. And, and I'll touch on a little bit what I'm using. I, I think what we're both advocating is that if you feel the inflammatory response is excessive in some fashion that that's detrimental to the patient, that perhaps there is a role for, for corticosteroids. I think you were alluding to the, the mechanism here and what you're yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm not a pathologist, so no follow-up questions, please. Um, the uh, beautiful pictures that you see here are something called um, AFOP, Acute Fibrinous and Organizing Pneumonia. So this study that I've cited here is a French study with five COVID-19 patients who died uh, after a late stage illness, and all five of them had this particular pathology on autopsy. You can go back to SARS data and a study out of Toronto with 20 patients, again, late illness uh, deaths, and about a third of them had AFOP. A third of them had diffuse alveolar damage, which is the typical pathological finding associated with ARDS, and a third of them had a mix between the two. So AFOP exists with these viral infections, and the key term here, and my, basically my complete understanding of this, is the last two letters are OP, uh, which uh, is most closely associated with COP, or cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, which is a steroid responsive condition. So again, all I'm saying is that we've at least cleared the first hurdle here, which is biological plausibility. Excellent. And, and Scott, we'll, we'll talk about the stain technique uh, on, on these uh, for those interested. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so what's a follow? And I think this is the big challenge. That, that's Scott showing how well he balances uh, in his off-hour uh, time. And it's the avoidance of extremes. And, and that was a concept we introduced earlier in the idea when I was managing these patients in, in the unit, I certainly didn't want to go one way or the other too far. Um, certainly looking at a fluid balance, uh, ideally zero balance or slightly negative is, is what I was trending. But, you know, I was giving fluid boluses targeted when I felt that perhaps we had overdone it or an individual wasn't taking in enough uh, of fluids. I do look at the inflammatory mediators. Um, in terms of the CRP is, is what I would particularly look at. And then if my patient was getting worse and I saw a, a new spike in the CRP, first and foremost, rule out other causes for, for the inflammation like infection, which certainly these patients are at high risk, but, you know, did start high dose corticosteroids in an individual who suddenly had a new increase in that with no other explanation and worsening gas exchange and worsening clinical appearance. Um, was that the right thing to do? Um, perhaps time will, will tell us. Um, 
whether it was or, or not, but that's how I tend to use it. Um, I always struggle with the ferritin. I'm not, I always used to say that's a small furry animal that some people have as a, uh, a pet. Um, but again, I would associate that as another sign of inflammation. The final thing I'd look at um, was the D-dimers. And for what was typically a, a limited value test, what I would use it in my, my COVID patients was, again, if they were worsening and that in isolation was increasing, I was worrying about too much coagulation uh, happening in the microvasculature and that I would uh, think about increasing the anticoagulation in my patients. And so normally we had them on twice a day DVT prophylaxis of a low molecular weight uh, heparin, but that if I saw that rising, I would uh, begin to push the the envelope of, of anticoagulation and actually measure uh, the anti-10A for, for that. Scott, what, what would you follow on, on your patients when you're caring? Yeah, I, I agree with, uh, with the approach. I mean, if you want to loosely tie uh, CRP to steroids and D-dimer to dose of anticoagulation, that makes a ton of sense for me. Um, something that I've never thought about before, but now I'm suddenly fascinated with is the kinetics of these things. So how fast do they go up? How high do they stay up after insult? How quickly do they come down? These are things that I don't understand at all and, uh, you know, needs clarification certainly for me. Um, but yes, uh, I've been using steroids. Um, I hope it's the right thing to do. A patient's sick enough to come to the ICU, uh, whether intubated or not, who has a high CRP then I've been using a dose of about uh, 40 of methylpred BID, which uh, intravenously, which is um, you know based on a common regimen in New York, and so I suspect that we'll see some observational studies uh, of that dose coming out in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, but admittedly, that's not based on on uh, any particular evidence, solid or otherwise. Yeah, I use slightly higher. Um roughly about 60 uh, twice a day uh, and the idea again being for 48 hours and then rapidly tapering down. So again this is anecdotes and, and I trust everyone appreciates that we don't have the perfect answer. Um, again I don't start all my patients on corticosteroids. It was only in those who were worsening that I, I saw other signs of, of inflammatory changes. Uh, the last aspect is going to be on clotting. Um, Scott, you know, I think we're aware that these patients at higher risk, uh, there's some questions about alteration in plasmin, um, and the evidence is pretty clear that they do get a lot of microthrombi. Um, the question is really why and what do you do with it? How, what was your approach on it? Yeah, it's uh, evolving over time as well. I think the default stance, unless there's some unusual and strong contraindication, would be to give at least aggressive DVT prophylaxis. Uh, the study that I show on the right there is uh, a study from China. Unusual study, they had patients on nothing. They're not on full-dose anticoagulation. They're not even on, it, on prophylactic doses. And they had a, a very high incidence of uh, thromboembolic disease, as you might predict, something like 30%. Um, and the interesting thing out of this study was the D-dimer cutoff. So you have to convert that to our units. So it'd be 1500, not 1 1.5. So the patients who had a D-dimer above 1500 were at very high risk of clotting. Now, this is off everything. So I was loosely using that uh, as a cutoff. And 
again, in a, in a patient who's very inflammatory, and certainly we've seen D-dimers quite a bit higher than that, like quite a bit higher than that, um, I would uh, have a strong bias right now towards fully anticoagulating them, provided that there's no contraindication to it. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. Um, certainly, they all need to have at least very aggressive prophylaxis, I would argue. Yeah, and you were using low molecular weight heparins, I think, for the most part? So a lot of the time I was using um, plain heparin at first because you're not exactly sure which way the renal function is going to break. Um, once the patient had settled into a pattern where it looked like the renal function was going to be stable, I was often transitioning over to low molecular weight heparin. And there's a debate, I gather, about which, you know, you're wondering whether there's some uh, anti-inflammatory effect of these agents that might be offering a side benefit. Um, whether uh, enoxaparin or heparin has better anti-inflammatory characteristics. I don't quite know the answer to that question. I had always assumed heparin did, but um, people are telling me I might be wrong about that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer. I, I was actually using um, enoxaparin, which I think you'll know that's not my typical approach, um, but I was more aggressive in actually using the low molecular as opposed to uh, our traditional unfractionated heparin. So with that, you know, some quick questions um, I'll, I'll ask and then we'll get into it, uh, Quad. I'm sure you've gathered some. When do you extubate your patients? Scott, like what was your criteria, the typical or? Uh, um, yeah, I, I don't have any strong advice to offer here. We're dealing a little bit with um, low sample size problems here because, uh, you know, we've been relatively spared as a center here in, in Ottawa. Um, and because of the length of illness that these intubated patients typically have, the issues around extubation don't come up very often. Um, I extubated, um, you know, four or five of them and I used fairly, fairly standard criteria. Yeah, I think one of the big take-home messages was potentially wait a day or two longer uh, to ensure that they're not transitioning or going to get worse. Uh, there was also a lot of anecdotes about airway edema um, and whether or not the ACE2 receptors that are in the oral pharynx and, and things as such may be swollen more than your typical type of patient. So there was a, a question. I think anytime you extubate, it's always that you may have to re-intubate um, and just the challenges that this population in terms of protecting the staff in terms of re-intubation is certainly a factor. In terms of medical therapies for the most part, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but for, I wasn't advocating the use of hydroxychloroquine um, in my patients because I, I don't think the evidence was there and my concerns was the cardiac. So I actually recommended not starting it in an individual. Um, and who knows if that was the right question. Um, certainly stand by not including it with azithromycin. Yeah, my only comment here would be that um, enroll these patients in studies wherever possible. Uh, that removes your barrier to uh, procuring the drug and um, we'll hopefully learn something. True. Um, I guess my issue was I wouldn't put them on it regardless, and so it's always hard to put them in a study if you believe it's potentially harmful. Yeah. Um, fair enough, so that fair was enough. My ethical dilemma. Uh, in terms of a tracheotomy, obviously I'm biased, and, and I do feel there's a role. You're okay with it? 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, the safety of the staff is uh, the concern here. And um, so you have to be at an expert center. Um, you've obviously been involved in, in more of these than I have, Dave, but I think you'd, I guess you'd agree that communication between um, the anesthesia and surgical team in terms of timing of uh, having the airway open and not open is going to be the most important thing here. So you got to be a well-oiled machine. Yeah, and I actually, you know, in spite of some of the recommendations, I think a perk trach is way safer than an open trach. Uh, I hope people understand the open trach recommendation comes from SARS when we weren't actually even doing perk trachs, so limited on that. And, and before we go take questions from the um, viewers, um, what was the thing you, what was the most important thing you think you learned about managing COVID patients? Boy, uh, oh, wow. Um, I mean, certainly feeling humble these days and um, aware of um, the limited knowledge we've never had, at least in my career so far, a brand new disease, not only a brand new disease dropped into your lap, but a brand new disease that fills up half your ICU. It's, it's quite amazing. Um, and the pace of change here has been remarkable. And so anytime you think you're sure of something, you better, uh, you better uh, think twice. Yeah. No, I, I think the thing I learned the most is what you don't know. And uh, so when people say, well, I know how to do X or Y, I'm like, well, that's good because I'm not sure I have the full confidence. So maybe Quad can tell us what he learned and what, what questions, uh, you know, Scott can answer because he's, he's more of a geek and a smarter guy. Than <laughs> well, first of all, thank you guys for doing this. Um, I do want to echo the, one of the things in terms of what we learned. I, I can't think of... Yeah, yes, it's a new disease. It's a new, um, you know, it fills up your ICU. But the a lot of the stuff we weren't we were seeing wasn't intuitive. You know what I mean? Like this pro this uh, hypercoagulability, like um, like above and beyond other viruses or illnesses that we've seen. The the this talk of COVID brain, um, the different types of presentation in terms of the lung pathology, like. Um, you know, um, co um, compliant versus non-compliant lung. Like this is, it's, it's different. So I'll echo what Scott was saying is like how humbling this could all be and what is, um, how agile you need to be, you know what I mean? To be able to really take this illness seriously. You need to be agile so you can jump from one wrong answer to the next <laughs> wrong answer. <laughs> exactly. Um, so there's a, quite a few questions here. I'm going to start with one of my own, actually. Um, anticoagulation. Since we started to take it more seriously, have you noticed any difference clinically of the prevalence of, of dialysis needs? Uh, no. Uh, again, small sample size uh, being the problem here, I think. Um, the autopsy studies that I've seen, and somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, I hope, is that uh, um, renal vascular microthrombosis does not seem to be a prominent feature, which is curious. So I would, I would not guess, and it's a pure guess, that anticoagulation would do a lot for your renal failure. Um, and I haven't had a high enough sample size to really know. And I think my experience is also confounded by the fact that I anticoagulated, fully anticoagulated uh, nearly everybody. Um, my small subset of, relatively small subset of patients, I didn't, I did not have a lot of renal failure, 
uh, alluding back to a point that Dave made uh, right off the top. Yeah, I, I think I have to echo what Scott's saying is I, I was aggressive with the anticoagulation. Um, and the person I took over from uh, was also aggressive with the anticoagulation. So we didn't see any renal um, insufficiency. So cause and effect or association is hard to say. Fair enough. Okay, um, this is an earlier question in terms of um, the differing phenotypes. Are you noticing a diff uh, different um, different presentation amongst them? Like, so, you know, are the, is the compliant um, group, are they more diabetic or hypertensive, for example? Have you noticed any um, similarities in that fashion? I haven't. Uh, noticed uh, myself. Uh, I think that the answer to that good question is going to hopefully come out of uh, New York data. A, a lot of this is going to depend on, you know, socioeconomic determinants of health, I think. And if you're in a, in, if you're in a system where people are presenting later in their illnesses, you're going to presumably see more type H's. Uh, and if you're in a system where people uh, come to the hospital in general quicker, you're gonna see less. And I think we're more of the, that latter category. Uh, so people are coming uh, before they're at death's door. Um, so yeah, I have, I have not particularly noticed an association. My big concern is that it's the, it's the iatrogenic shift from L to H uh, that can happen. And so this is ventilator associated, whether that's barotrauma, whether that's atelectotrauma, whether that's just virtue of getting these patients intubated, sedated, they get a bit hypotensive, they get fluid resuscitated, all these things mixed in a bag, I worry can increase the stiffness. And so by avoiding that wherever possible, I, uh, I hope to avoid that progression. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I would concur with most of what Scott said. I, I think the, the volume uh, hasn't been clear enough that we'd be able to do that as a single center or, or at the two campuses. So I think you would need a, a larger demographic uh, database to be able to answer that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, the cardiogenic shock. So we used to hear a lot about that in February early on about some of the cardiac sequelae uh, late sequelae of COVID-19. Are you seeing any of that or are you doing any kind of surveillance to manage that? Well, you know me, I uh, am echoing all my patients systematically, of course, uh, as is my habit before COVID and certainly during COVID. Uh, I haven't found, I haven't seen any of it, like zero. Uh, again, small sample size theater here. So I take that with a huge grain of salt. Uh, but I haven't seen any, and I haven't even seen left ventricular dysfunction on echo. Um, you know, these patients are typically have normal LV systolic function, or they're more of a septic type picture, uh, inflammatory, hyperdynamic, et cetera, et cetera. So I have not seen it, but um, I know it's well described. Well, it's certainly well described out of the Seattle group, um, where they talked about this cardiomyopathy, I think about 33%. Um, I agree with you, Scott. I haven't haven't seen it, or I'm not smart enough to recognize it. I, I guess we are doing. There is a cardiac surveillance program going on at at the two Ottawa hospitals um, in conjunction with their cardiology colleagues, but we certainly haven't seen it. Which um, it'll 
be curious to see what comes out of New York and some of the other centers and and perhaps um, we can eventually do a deeper dive of why Seattle reported such a high value. Like, I wonder if that's also where they more aggressive with the azithromycin and exactly. hydroxychloroquine. The, and, and so I think that's maybe where you're going. Is that a treatment-related effect as opposed to COVID per se? Yeah, because it, it is odd that, you know, like, why would that, why should it be more prevalent there? And personally, myself, just to echo what you guys said, I'm, I'm not seeing it at all. Um, in the uh, low sample size patients that I've seen. Um, there was a question by Jasmine earlier about ECMO, whether it's a reasonable or fair um, treatment modality in the, in the context of COVID-19. She asked specifically for the H type, but I think um, whether H or L, um, any thoughts on ECMO as a treatment? Dave, you want to take first crack at this one? <laughs> um, so ECMO certainly probably has uh, a role for salvage uh, therapy, for want of a better word. I hate how they use that term, but that is the term they use. Um, it is predominantly for the severe ARDS type of patients. They had toyed with it about the cardiac for the cardiomyopathy, but as we kind of alluded to, most we're not seeing that. Um, I do know in the province that uh, I don't think we're up to 20 individuals, but somewhere in that, um, with a uh, a reasonable survival rate that I'm, I'm sure the province will report uh, soon. Um, what was initially being purported was that the results were very poor and dismal. And, and I think what's panned out is that is not the case. Um, for those listening who may not be aware that the survival rate for ECMO for other disorders may not be as great as, as what it is for, for uh, the non-ECMO patients, but they are getting favorable outcomes with some patients have gone home. And so I think it does have a role, um, certainly perhaps is limited and, and who could benefit from it, but uh, short answer is yes, it does have a role. Yeah, I certainly would agree with all that. Uh, it doesn't come up as often as you think it would seem, and that's because there are these established relative and absolute contraindications to ECMO, which you could certainly argue about each one um, and potentially reassess them in the face of uh, COVID. But um, most of your patients who do poorly are going to meet one or more of those at least relative contraindications, at least if not the absolute. So your patients that are at higher risk of doing poorly are patients who are older, uh, patients who have significant medical comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. And that will rule them out of uh, ECMO by traditional traditional criteria. And so it's, it's, it's not a, an issue that's coming up as often as you might suspect. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Um, I, th I think those are all the major questions that I, I see there. I just want, I want to really... Once again, thank you for the time for for discussing these treatment options. There's a lot of, as we've mentioned before, a lot of fluidity to this, and there's a lot of, you know, you know, um, anecdotal evidence and so on. But it's it's good to hear what some of our 
our colleagues, how we're approaching these, these problems. Like even uh, the other day, we, I, I got a text message asking about D-dimer cutoffs for anticoagulation. I'm like, you know what? I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I really don't know. Like it's, there's so much in the air, but to have that kind of dialogue to really get a sense of what, you know, what the mindset of our colleagues are and, and, you know, we, we really want to just serve and do our, our patients as, as good as we can. So I, I think this helps. And uh, I really appreciate what uh, you guys taking the time. Uh, Quadra, are you going to be able to edit out that part where I forgot hypoxemia? <laughs> that was that it's was gonna be, <laughs> that was embarrassing. I, I do a, I do a blooper clip at the end. I just put it on my peak, buddy. I just keep, I just keep keep it going. I, uh, I swear I swear I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, short of hypoxemia, I think the most important thing that everyone should take home is that, you know, we're learning from each other, you know, certainly uh, I know Akshay is on, on the, on the, on the webinar here. And we talked with him is one of our colleagues at one of our sister hospitals who got the initial wave. And again, there's no perfect answer. There's no perfect way. And what we're trying to do is adjust our treatment to how the individual is responding. Um, Although we presented like a dichotomy for some of the presentations, I, I think Scott's word of spectrum is is very correct, and I don't think there's a one size fits all. And and don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, um, you know, like I I came there to rescue him about hypoxemia, and and uh, you know I'm sure someday Scott will find something that he'll rescue me on. So it's. Uh, it's all good, and, and the nurses have adapted perfectly to this. The RTs, respiratory therapists, along with um, our other health professionals like pharmacists and dietitians, and and our physio physical therapists. Yeah, it it really is in some ways uh, almost special to be a part of it because it's really like a, a lot of people in a collaborative effort with the same goal. Like it's you, you feel like you're 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 part of something special all right gentlemen thank you for doing this um those that are on um, the other side thank you for the questions this is going to be posted up on youtube in a day or two and also i, I will put it on as a, as a as a podcast as well so uh there'll be an audio reference but um thank you so much and everyone stay safe thanks quad